Yeah. I'm honored to have with me today, Professor Emeritus Benjamin Arbel from Tel Aviv University. Professor Arbel is a giant in his field and has published dozens of articles on Venetian Cyprus and several monographs, including Trading Nations, Jews and Venetians in the Early Modern Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus, the Franks and Venice, 13th to 16th centuries, and studies on Venetian Cyprus. That's not to mention uh, the many edited books and special publications that he's put out as well. Today, he's here with us to talk about a very misunderstood era in Cypriot history, and that is Cyprus under Venice. Uh, Benjamin, again, it is a pleasure and welcome. Yeah, good evening. <laughs> um, it's it's great just to just to talk to someone whose work I've I've read the letters, the Venetian letters that you published through the uh -huh. uh, Bank of Cyprus, uh -huh. I believe. I was so drawn in to reading these letters and seeing their the the facsimiles, you know, the photocopies of them. Well, I, when I was approached by by the Bank of Cyprus uh, Cultural Foundation, uh, they they invited me to come over and have a look at this material, and I was uh, uh, I, I really liked the idea of of uh, of collecting them because because um, some of them were well at that time at least part of uh, private collections. You know, I had to go around Cyprus and uh, talk to people and try try to persuade them to. To let me publish, uh, because you know they are collectors. They are uh, who are unable to re to to read and understand what they possess. <laughs> for them, it, it was a sort of a service I did for them. Now, when um, you say private collection, um, and forgive my ignorance, are these purchased through, let's say, auctions, or were they letters that were bequeathed generation to generation? I I I think they are uh, they are offered uh, in auctions uh, as far as I know most of them and uh, what is worse uh, many of them were simply stolen from archives from 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 the Venetian state archives and more particularly and you know many years ago uh, and uh, and reached the the market and then they, you know changed hands uh, mm -hmm. uh, through yeah. auctions yes yeah if you if you noticed in the in that that volume i i didn't say so openly and explicitly but if you read the um, no, notes i wrote for instance uh, that letter was most probably part of uh, the series papapam uh, you know in the venetian state archive in the past or something like that i'm guessing you've you've been to venice um, many times I'm going to go on a limb there. And um, are you, is it easy to have access to the state archives in Venice? Um, yes, it, it's uh, very easy. It's very easy. You, you, it's very easy. I mean, uh, it's a very nice uh, public service. Uh, all all uh, state archives in Italy are quite uh, open and uh, collaborative. I Last month I was in Italy. I, I went through three of them, actually, uh, Modena, Mantova, and, and Venice. And uh, it was a very pleasant experience, yeah. Not only for me, I'm also young, you know, young, uh, young people, uh, PhD students, uh, and so on. Not only, you know, uh, uh, established scholars like myself. I mean, it's, right, it's, it's, and it's, I mean the the increased digitization of these of these archives must make it infinitely easier to access them from abroad. I, I, at least that's what I would assume. 
most of the material, the, 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 the greatest part uh, of the material is not digitalized. Oh, okay. That's unfortunate. Yes. Do you, do you, you know have... if they have any plans on digitizing them? Well, there are different projects. Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, the, the progress is very slow because they don't have enough funding for that, and uh, and uh, well, it will take uh, several more generations before before it's really. Uh, Venice is the biggest state archive in Italy. It's huge. It is actually the the archive of the Republic of the old Republic, and it, it's huge. It's endless. It's you cannot imagine the. How, how much material there still is, uh, material which has never been, you know, used for, for research or for anything else. So certainly um, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more resources uh, as uh, with regards to Cyprus that, ha- that hasn't been accessed. Yeah, undoubtedly so, yes. Wow, okay. I, I feel like one of the themes um, that runs through uh, your work is redressing many of the misconceptions around Venetian rule. The claim that Cyprus experienced a quote, and I quote, a period of negligence and decay. And I think you even call this the black legend. So what is this black legend? And where do we get this idea that uh, this was a period of decline? Well, uh, it's really a, a very curious uh, story. Uh, you know, when I try to put together all the relevant material related to this this image, uh, this very very negative image of the Venetian period, this more or less a century of, of Venetian rule, a very static image, as if nothing could change. Everything was bad from the beginning to the end. Uh, it's it's really it's it sounds it sounds strange if not if not to, to say ridiculous because nothing I mean in history everything changes all the time it depends only on the rhythm on the direction and some ups and down I mean it's impossible to imagine a situation which is hundred years or so totally totally absolutely negative now let me start I I. I, if I allow myself uh, to to read about uh, six or seven lines, where it all started, it all started actually before I read the the the, the paragraph. It all started uh, in France. the The main uh, uh, person responsible for this image is um, um, a scholar called Louis de, de Maslatry, a French scholar quite well known for many publications uh, that he published, who uh, in, in the mid-19th century was sent by the uh, French authorities to Cyprus to collect evidence, documents, whatever he could find about uh, <laughs> what uh, the French uh, then uh, conceived as... as uh, the, the French rule of Cyprus, <laughs> uh, which is already a, a problematic uh, a terminology. I mean, uh, uh, we have to remember this was the height of, you know, colonial period. Uh, Euro- European uh, powers contended uh, f- uh, uh, 
contended for 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 the rule of of overseas uh, territories in Africa, in the Far East, and also in the Mediterranean. And uh, France was one of these powers. And uh, colonialism was not such a pejorative term as it is today. On the contrary, there were. Uh, ministries of uh, colonial uh, administration and uh, international uh, conferences on uh, uh, no, exhibition, rather exhibitions on, on colonial uh, affairs. Uh, there were shops with colonial products and so on. So, so this is now Maslatry published three volumes um, uh, of documents that he found, uh, not necessarily in Cyprus, but uh, related to, to Cyprus during the rule of the Lusignan dynasty, a really French a, a nobleman who who par- took part in the in the Crusades, you know, during the Middle Ages, and. Uh, and settled in the in the Levant in the east in the 11th and 12th centuries. On their way, one of uh, one of the these waves, you know, one of these one of these uh, crusades, also included uh, uh, Cyprus, which was not a, a part of a Muslim empire like like the other territories uh, where the crusaders settled. It was. Um, uh, Byzantine territory uh, belonging to the Byzantine Empire, but the <laughs> the Crusaders uh, didn't uh, uh, didn't care very much about these small differences. And uh, the one uh, who, who who conquered the island was uh, Richard Lionheart, the famous famous English uh, uh, king, who who later passed it. Uh, because he had more important things to do, <laughs> to to the to these uh, the to a certain Guy de Lusignan, who was the head of the the family of the Lusignan, a French noble family, and this dynasty ruled Cyprus until the early fourteen uh, seventies, uh, when the Venetian uh, period began. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. This is how Maslatry, in the third volume of the documents that I just mentioned, describes what happened during the Venetian period in Cyprus. I'm 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 translated it from from the French uh, into uh, into English. The workshops were nearly totally destroyed. Trade languished. Men of substance emigrated. Schools were closed. Landlords abandoned their properties. Streams invaded the lowlands, creating infected swamps. Private and public resources diminished everywhere. Historical testimonies reflect a general impoverishment of all the elements that had been at the basis of the island's prosperity under the old kings, and the insufficiency of measures occasionally taken by Venice as remedies. End of end of citation. You see, so this is this is a very uh, this is well, I can I can tell you now <laughs> on the basis of my my many uh, years of research on Venetian Cyprus. Nothing of that of these the series of generalization is 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 based on any serious evidence. Nothing. Nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing, and this is incredible because this guy, Maslatry, was was quite a, a, an important scholar, and uh, although 
the the uh, the three volumes of documents uh, were are sometimes uh, uh, not at the height of uh, you know they, they are they are sometimes very careless uh, works. I I suspect that he paid someone to do the job for him because it was not very important for him. Uh, anyhow, what is even more astonishing is the fact that already the books the book where it was published. Uh, appeared in 1871, and already in the 1870s, uh, other scholars simply repeated repeated these these statements time and again between the 1870s and the 1990s. Just imagine, there that's was, very recent. That's that's relatively very recent. Uh, I have a list of name. I w- I will not tire you with the name of of the authors who. Repeated and sometimes even added some some other pejorative descriptions uh, of of that terrible <laughs> period when 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 uh, Cyprus uh, was uh, uh, ruled by by Venice. This this is this is really a black legend, and it it's this depressing. Even you know, as, as a historian, it it it's, it depressed me to find out how people are are. Uh, Totally uncritical, repeating, copying from one another, and uh, uh, these these statements without without any attempt to, to to look more critically at 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 these sentences. There were a few exceptions, a few exceptions, starting with George Hill, the famous, uh, very important uh, English scholar. He was uh, the director of the British Library, and he published. The three-volume history of Cyprus, which is really a, a, a still an important work of research, and he was much more uh, cautious and uh, and and uh, critical using the historical material available to him. There is also um, a, a Cypriot scholar Theodor Papadopoulos. I don't know if you you came across this name. He was important. He passed away already uh, several years ago. In, in a short chapter of 12 pages dedicated to Venetian Cyprus in the series History of the Greek uh, People that appeared in Athens, he also looked at things differently. But, but as I told you, until the mid-1990s, this black legend continued to, to appear uh, uh, once in a while. What what does the archaeological evidence uh, suggest? And, and for example, the decay of the Kyrenia fortifications and the focus on military fortifications in Nicosia and Famagusta, they've been used to validate Venice's indifference to the local population. But you, you were actually writing one of your papers on the contrary, and I quote, on the contrary, the period of Venetian domination was most likely a golden age, end quote. So um, how have you challenged this well, I, I began. That. You know, this was this was uh, this was the subject of my PhD. This is the research, uh, research uh, that I uh, began in 1974, and uh, it took me eight years to conclude it, until uh, it uh, it was approved by the Senate of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in uh, 1982. And uh, I'm my approach. Uh, my approach uh, was uh, that of a social and economic histor- historian. And um, I very much, a central element of, of my research, at the beginning of my research, I, I, I started to look for 
demographic evidence, evidence on populations, on, on, on not, you know, not an anecdote, but, you know, uh, materials, numerical, numerical evidence, materials that can give me an idea about a long-term development of one century, yes? And uh, <laughs> I expected, of course, uh, some difficulties, but I, I think I, I succeeded in, 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 in using the evidence, most of which I found in Venice, in the Venetian State Archive, that were <laughs> quite the opposite of what, what Maslatry and the others tried to, uh, to argue. Uh, the Cyprus at the beginning of Venetian rule or the end of the Lusignan rule uh, numbered about about uh, 110 120,000 inhabitants that is very that's that's very <laughs> very small number yes of course at the end of the Venetian rule or on, on the eve of the Ottoman uh, uh, invasion of uh, 1570, it nearly reached 200,000 souls. So despite the fact that in the mid-time there were also the pest pest reached uh, Famagusta, but but the Venetians were able to to block its propagation to other parts of the island. I mean, they were were really uh, uh, quite quite, uh, successful in and in conducting uh, virtually a, a, a campaign for the uh, repopulation of the island i mean they did they invested great efforts to do to to convince people to settle in cyprus people from other venetian territories pe- uh, christians from uh, Th- syria for instance maronites inhabitants of former venetian Colonies that were conquered by the Ottomans in in in, in fifteen forty, for instance, they, they invited them to settle in, in 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 Cyprus. They even subsidized the travel expenses of of at the one point of people who were who were ready to 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 come to Cyprus. So this is uh, and and of course. Uh, public works like drying up the Costanza swamps near near Famagusta, organizing a new water supply system also in Famagusta, bi- uh, building or rebuilding or restoring the 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 walls of of Famagusta and building the those of Nicosia who were practically which were practically inexistent um, in the early fifteen uh, sixties and so on and so forth. What drew uh, Venice to Cyprus? What were what was a what was the appeal to uh, controlling this island in the Eastern Mediterranean? Well, the Eastern Mediterranean was a very important area uh, for Venetian trade. Venice had in the 15th century hegemony in this area in the international maritime trade in this area. Uh, this uh, this is where. All the you know the spices are arrived from the far east to to the to the ports of of the of the Levant. Uh, this is uh, where the silk arrived uh, 
from far away from Central Asia or even further to to the Mediterranean. This is where all kinds of uh, local products uh, were produced and export natural products too, uh, like ashes uh, of certain plants used in the Venetian uh, uh, glass uh, glass industry, uh, famous Venetian glass. The cotton, the Syrian cotton, was of, of utmost importance, uh, like like the one uh, grown on on Cyprus, by the way. For Venice uh, tra- transported uh, gr- great quantities of cotton from Syria and from Cyprus to Venice, and uh, for it, where it was purchased especially by German merchants who, who took them for the industries of southern Germany. Alexandria was also an outlet, an important outlet of of, of merchandise that that came from far away. So uh, the, the eastern and and Cyprus was really in the heart of this area. Cyprus, with its protected port of Famagusta and with with the with the salt at uh, at the Lesaline, at La Flarnaca, offered an ideal base. You know, also for unpredictable situations. You know, Venetian ships sometimes reached Cyprus. Cyprus was also a center of information. Information. Reach Cyprus from from Syria, from Egypt. Sometimes it was too dangerous or risky to continue and to end up, you know, in in a, in, a, in one of the ports of Syria or Alexandria, and then you know face harassments or all kinds of difficulties. So uh, they could stop in Cyprus and investigate what's the situation uh, further on uh, in the provinces of of the Ottoman Empire and only only once they uh, decide that everything is okay and secure they continued further on and if not they simply unloaded their merchandise in Cyprus and let local smaller crafts carry it at some later point later stage uh, eastwards and and vice versa um, in the years preceding the Venetians it seems to be characterized by upheaval uh, we have bouts of plague, Mamluk invasion. Would you characterize this uh, period as a turbulent time? Yes, there, uh, yes, of course. There was also a civil war, and there was a war for the uh, for the inheritance of the crown when when the, the last king uh, died, and uh, his his daughter, who was who was married to the Duke of Savoy, and uh, and his uh, illegitimate son, uh, King. Uh, Jacques the second, or in English James, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, he they were they were uh, uh, French speaking, you know the the ruling the ruling group. So uh, I'll, I'll continue calling him Jacques, and uh, and, and the 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 uh, nobility, the the ruling group, yes, of Cyprus, the the noblemen uh, were split to two groups. Uh, there was there, were, there was really a fight between them, and uh, the uh, when Jacques uh, had the upper hand, uh, all the supporters of of, uh, of his uh, half sister had to leave the island. Um, he uh, Jacques himself uh, conquered Famagusta from the Genoese because Genoese held Famagusta for for from the from the late 14th century to the to the 1460s. Uh, so there was war. There were there were 
plagues uh, uh, that uh, decimated the, the population. Uh, it was really, uh, uh, and there were incursions, incursions uh, on, on, there was an incursion uh, in the 1420s, a Genoese incursion on Limassol, and before that, uh, a, 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 in a Mamluk uh, incursion uh, uh, that destructed uh, and burnt down Limassol. It was really uh, <laughs> a, a poor, a very poor uh, state of uh, affairs, and uh, and uh, King Jacques, when once he he, he took uh, over the uh, the rule of Cyprus, uh, married a Venetian, uh, the daughter of a Venetian patrician, uh, the Caterina Cornaro, the famous Caterina, Queen Caterina. And uh, when he himself died at a, at a relatively young a- age, in, in 1473, his wife, Caterina, with, with a small baby uh, who, who was born uh, shortly uh, afterwards, uh, was left alone on the crown. On, on, on the, not on the crown, of course, on the, on the how do you call it, the the seat of kings, you know, the, <laughs> uh, and uh, and Venice at that time was conducting a, a long and tedious war against the Ottoman Empire. I'm talking about 1473, yes. So, and the, the war that started in 1463 and ended in 1479, um, for Venice, it was of great importance to keep. Cyprus, at least, as a comfortable base of operations, not only for military operations, but also because Venice was the had had hegemony actually um, in the in the air in the field of international trade, in maritime trade, and and especially trade with the Levant, what we call the Levant, the Eastern Mediterranean. So. Uh, uh, that's that's the background for the Venetian intervention to protect uh, the queen, uh, the Venetian queen, and to uh, uh, to prevent other powers from taking hold of the island. Now, the it, it emerges as a as a protectorate between fourteen seventy three and fourteen eighty nine, and mm-hmm. then later on between fourteen eighty nine and fifteen seventy one to the end of Venetian rule, it's known as um, I suppose Venetian colonial rule. What what's the difference between the two? What characterizes one um, differently than the other? It's a it's a very slight formal difference, actually, for all practical purposes. From the last days of 1473, actually, from we can say from beginning from 1474, from January 74, in for all practical purposes, Cyprus was under Venetian rule. The queen was still there. But she didn't have any say. She had two so-called counselors, Venetian patricians, who who told her what to do and how how to do. Uh, there were uh, governors of the main urban centers and uh, fortresses, and uh, I mean the 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 normal uh, way pattern of of colonial rule that Venice was, well, Venice was a very experienced colonial power. Uh, Venice uh, c- controlled and uh, dominated uh, 
uh, wide territories, uh, overseas territories, uh, such as Crete, such as the island of Corfu, such as the entire Dalmatian coast, uh, also islands in the Aegean. So uh, they were very well versed in how to how to do it, and uh, but but they were prudent enough not to not to make drastic changes before preparing the terrain, especially bringing the war of the Ottoman to termination, and and not less important, convincing the Mamluks who ruled Egypt and Syria and considered themselves as overlords of Cyprus this is this is this is a, a heritage of of earlier earlier events uh, uh, in the 1420s the mamluks invaded cyprus and uh, took prisoner the king janus uh, the lusignan was taken prisoner and the condition for releasing him was that the cypriot uh, pay a trib- an annual tribute of 8,000 gold ducats, that's quite a nice sum, to the Mamluks as a sign of, you know, of the, of the Mamluk overlordships over the island. I mean, it was a formal overlordships, uh, but, uh, but uh, Venice did not want the Mamluks to oppose uh, Venetian uh, domination of the island. And uh, Venetian diplomacy was very, very uh, experienced and knew how to deal with the Mamluks. So they sent uh, an ambassador that uh, negotiated with them. And at the end, when the, w- the war with the Ottoman uh, ended, once the war with the Ottoman ended and the, and, and the, and the Mamluks were ready to continue to receive the money, the 8,000 ducats from Venice instead of uh, the Lusignan kings, uh, things were ready for for a formal annexation. But as I said, for all practical purposes, Venice ruled Cyprus already in 1474. So it was very um, serendipitous that uh, Catherine Cornaro inherited the crown, so to speak. I don't know if I can articulate this well, but were were plans already in motion for Venice? Well, at, to- at the, when, 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 when the decision was taken in Venice, they, they, uh, the Queen's relatives, who were Venetian patricians, who were part of the ruling group of Venice, uh, the, 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 uh, the patricians, uh, they were sent to to the island to convince her to to give up uh, the crown and return home, so to speak. <laughs> she was also promised a very nice estate uh, in the mainland, in the Venetian mainland in northern Italy, at uh, at a place called Asolo, where she where she spent the rest of her life. As you mentioned, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, a little bit more in depth. We have a period of. I suppose decline, population decline, leading up to Cyprus's emergence as a Venetian protectorate. And by by fifteen fourteen, the population it stabilizes, and we know this from population surveys, which, um, admittedly, for reasons I'm sure you'll probably touch on, uh, they, they they can also be problematic. But the fact is, Venetians they start they start executing these uh, massive population surveys, um, and what I want to know is. What is this data used for? And um, I mean, what are they intended for? Why are they um, conducting these population surveys for? As far as I know, uh, I, I'm probably wrong. It's the first time something like this has been undertaken. If I'm not 
mistaken, the first one was carried out uh, by, by the Venetians in the in the early fourteen uh, eighties, uh, for fourteen eighty four or something like that. And then again, uh, uh, the second one in four, in the fourteen nineties, and uh, and then yes, and so forth. Uh, well, the the main purpose, you know, Cyprus was the great majority of of Cypriots at that time were peasants. Yes, about eighty five percent of the population inhabited uh, the rural uh, yes rural settlements uh, villages of uh, various kind and, and and dimension and the rest uh, lived in in the towns the purpose of the censuses the population censuses was a bit different uh, in the uh, each one of these sectors in the in the rural areas the the main purpose was a fiscal one because the peasants had fiscal obligations they had to pay taxes uh, according to their respective status because it is important to 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 clarify that venice inherited a kingdom that whose whose principal method of organization social and economic activity was a feudal, uh, that of a feudal state. That means that each village or even group of villages was part of, of a feudal estate. It had a lord and the lord has ri- had rights and the, the peasants, according to their respective status, uh, owed all kinds of imposts and services to the landlord, to the lord of the estate. Now, the lords of the estate were most of them noblemen, but there were also estates belonging to the church, and there were estates belonging to the uh, to the republic, to the to the ruling uh, uh, republic. Uh, about twenty twenty five percent of the villages were belonged to the to to the state the others uh, to private uh, feudatories and uh, to uh, church and uh, also military there were there were military orders the uh, the hospitallers uh, who owned uh, a lot of estates in cyprus so the the census the the uh, Population census. Its primary role was to note down how many peasants there were in each village and what their obligations, their fiscal obligations, were. I mean, how much did they have to pay to the landlord? How much did they have to pay to the state? Because the taxation was had two levels. The, the local one concerned the. Uh, Imposts, taxes, and uh, services owed by the peasants to the to the lord of the domain, lord of the estate, and the second level concerned the the the, the obligations of the same of the same peasants to the state. So this every every four or five or ten years, they perform these censuses to see who died, who 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 was still alive. 
and how how old how old they were because because the age was also of a certain importance. Of course, very old people could not perform services that young people uh, did, and so on. So everything had to be uh, noted down, and uh, unfortunately, we do not have even one. Uh, sen- detailed census which covers the entire isle, uh, island. My 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 job was very difficult to try to 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 reconstruct the whole uh, de- uh, demographic development on the basis of partial partial uh, uh, extant documentation. Now, fiscal fiscal purpose is uh, is the first is the first purpose. A second one is I would say military information uh, or military obligations uh, to put it in a better military obligation of the of the peasants for instance peasants were obliged to serve as a coast guard during the day and during the night yes mm. there, were, there were two basic types of or, or statuses of of, of of peasants. The one where the serfs serves, there was still many serfs, the uh, servile population who had to pay um, uh, money money uh, money dues, money imposts to, to the landlord and uh, crop sharing uh, they were had had to, to, to contribute up to up to forty percent of the crops of of that uh, of their uh, of their uh, personal lot or uh, to to the landlord and the other group were the francomati so called free free elefteri uh, yeah, free free peasants but they too had had uh, different obligations for instance the the parici uh, um, guarded the coast. During the day and the Francomati during the night, and so on. I'm familiar, having spoken with um, Nikos Kureas, I'm familiar with uh, these social divisions within Cyprus um, during the Frankish era. I-, I was assuming that there would have been a change. And so, what I'm to gather is that there wasn't a change under the Venetians. This, this serfdom was still in place all the way till the Ottoman era. Yes. Uh, uh, uh- but there were uh, there were small changes. There were not well the basic the basic uh, the basic distinction between different uh, social groups uh, remained the same. But uh, Venice was well. This Cyprus was unique actually because in all other territories dominated by Venice, there were no serfs anymore. Neither in northern Italy, nor in Crete, nor elsewhere, uh, Cyprus was unique in this respect. And, and why so? Why did it stay that way? Because it was an anachronistic, uh, uh, anachronistic social and economic system that uh, <laughs> nobody had probably the interest to, or, or, or to, to put it better, those who had the power to, to change it were, had, were, had no interest to do so, or they thought that they didn't have the interest to do so, at least. So, what, so the Venetians were very uh, much aware of the peculiar situation they encountered there, 
and in the course of time introduced changes. For instance, uh, Parici uh, had labor services to perform. Yes, for they had they had to 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 work two or three days per per week in the landlords in the part of the state that was uh, was was run uh, directly by by the landlord uh, by using you know the the uh, the uh, the work of of parici who also had their proper lots uh plots sorry what the venetians did was a gradual de- uh, reduction of this obligation from the age of 40 until the age of 60, uh, at which point uh, the parici, the old parici, uh, did not have to, to contribute these, these, these working days uh, to, to their lords, yes. Um, several several imposts like the marriage dues, I mean, uh, uh, parici had to pay their lords a tax for his consent to to a certain marriage uh, yes of, of a daughter of or son of a parik this was abolished uh, widows tax widows had widows who lost their husband at a relatively young age had to pay a special tax to encourage them to find a new a new parik a new husband mm. <laughs> but this this was also uh, uh, abolished uh, by the Venetians. The Venetians also abolished the animal tax. Uh, the uh, peasants did not have to pay tax on the, you know, on the animals uh, they they had for in their in their farms. Uh, so there were there were small changes. Uh, Parici, who could afford it, could also buy their freedom. Yeah, that was uh, and that was another question I had. I mean, you could, you could enfranchise yourself. It you seems. could, but but uh, the the number of parity who were uh, able to do so economically was rather small. So this. Uh, so was there was there social mobility? Um, I, I mean, to just piggyback off the last question here, because we know of several. Greek noble families, and including, uh, I think, Gondo Stefani, Singlitiki, pronounce yeah, that correct? Singlitikos, yeah, yeah. Sing- yes, okay, yes, Singlitikos. Yes. Um, now, yes. what what do those families teach us about Venetian Greek uh, relations? Because they, in particular, seem to have a very malleable identity. Um, in order to kind of function in the in in the nobility, they have to sort of navigate their Greek identity um, and, and, and adopt certain Venetian characteristics, I suppose. Uh, what does that teach us about, about the uh, social mobility of the era? Well, these, uh, these few, few about uh, not, not more than 10 uh, uh, noble families of Greek background, I would say, I call it, began their social ascent uh, before before the beginning of Venetian rule, I mean, they are they were already there as noblemen when, uh, or or nearly all of them uh, when Venice took over in uh, fourteen seventy three or seventy four, and they uh, their Greek their Greek background or identity 
did not play a very important role, I think, uh, in in with with regard to to Venetian. To, to to Venice accepted there as a fait accompli. They 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 did not bother to make distinction whether one spoke Greek or 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 Italian or or French or whatever. I mean the Venetians were quite uh, open in this respect at that at that stage, you know, at that historical stage. Because in Crete, for instance, when Venice took over Crete in the beginning of the 13th century. But 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 uh, that was a totally different situation because Venice conquered conquered uh, Crete militarily and it, it it was quite difficult to to establish themselves there. But once they did so, they blocked they 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 tried to prevent not very successfully the social ascent of 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 uh, Greeks uh, into into the ruling group. Uh, of 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 Crete of of the island of Crete, but that was in the 13th century. We are now talking about late 15th and and 16th century. Venice already did not uh, put, waste much energy in making these distinctions. I mean, the the I I, I studied the Singletico family quite uh, thoroughly and uh, published an article on them. Uh, they uh, they they occupied all all the most prestigious. Uh, titles and positions in the island, and they represented the the Cypriot nobility in Venice when it was uh, deemed necessary. They uh, they they occupied the position of the Viscount of Nicosia, which was a very prestigious uh, position. Uh, they, their daughters married uh, their daughters married uh, Venetian patricians uh, uh, with very weighty uh, dories. Uh, so uh, that was, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean that that was uh, uh, taken for granted. I mean, they they, they didn't had special difficulties in 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 reaching these uh, dispositions. Uh. Since since the Council of Florence in 1439, Cypriot Greeks they weren't considered schismatics. Uh, and so you actually, uh, a quote from one of your articles, you write, so social division based on religious affiliation could therefore scarcely be justified, end quote. So what might else explain the limited numbers of royal families? Because what as you mentioned- royal families? Of noble families? Of noble families. I said royal again. <laughs> of noble <laughs> families. I, you mentioned there's, at most there were 10. Uh, so why yes, were they I mean, so limited? Yes, because uh, that's very, that's very simple. Not because they were Greek, because there were very few noble families in in, in Cyprus during the Venetian period. There were probably who knows sixty, seventy families uh, altogether who who were uh, who, who were recognized as noblemen. Uh, that that's that resulted from you know from the from the struggle between different groups. Uh, before the Venetian takeover, uh, between Charlotte's uh, uh, Charlotte's supporters and Jacques supporters, and uh, and also because of natural you know process of uh, p- families die out uh, once they don't have uh, male um, descendants to continue the name and uh, and Venice had no interest at all to nominate new noblemen or noble women. Especially since, since according to the feudal 
the system, the principle, the basic uh, principles of feudal organization. Once a family dies out, their estate returned to the overlord, which is the Venetian Republic. <laughs> so they, uh, they they had no interest of having more more noblemen around. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes is from uh, the Chronicle of Leon de Osmajeras, uh, going back to the before the Venetian era. He 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 shares a story of Queen Charlotte not being able to read French for her marriage contract and requiring a Greek translation. And it, it's well established that many of these <clears throat> crusading um, these families, these Frankish families from the crusading states that established themselves in Cyprus eventually saw themselves as Cypriots. Did we have any of that happening in the uh, amongst Venetians? Was there Venetian settlement and did they assimilate in any way to um, quote-unquote Cypriot culture? Uh, I don't think so. Actually, there were quite a few Venetian... Uh, I, I am... I'm, I hesitate even to call them settlers. I mean, uh, uh, Venetian families who had uh, estates in Cyprus, very, very well-off families. The uh, the corner, the corner de la regina, they call them because they were the relatives of the queen of Queen Caterina, or the corner da piscopia, who had the uh, were overlords of were the lords of of the village of uh, piscopia which was one of the richest and and the biggest uh, uh, villages on Cyprus. Uh, there were a few others, but really, really very few. Uh, and, uh, and they considered themselves Venetians. You know, many of them uh, even did not really live uh, continuously on Cyprus. Uh, they had their estates there, their agents who ru- who managed the estates for them, and uh, they prefer to, to live in Venice. Uh, there were no... And uh, again, you know, comparing the, the situation in Crete, in Crete the, it was a different situation because in Crete, you rem- I, I've just... Uh, uh, explained that uh, the beginning of Venetian rule in Crete goes back to the early 13th century, and you know they held Crete for about 400 years until until the mid 17th century. But there, right at the beginning, Venice sent settlers, Venetian settlers, to Crete, and uh, these settlers, you know, <laughs> in the long run. Uh, uh, at one point, at least part of them intermarrying also with, with local uh, people from the local elites, uh, Greek Cretans, and so on. They 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 were a bit how do, how do you call it Greekized Greekized <laughs> they they became a bit uh, a Greek or or more than a bit a Greek uh, and uh, talked Greek and had uh, had uh, Greek names. But that 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 did not develop. I mean, the, the period was also shorter. The period domination of, and and there was no organized settlement, uh, like like in the case of Crete in Cyprus. The the the, the those those Venetians who who settled permanently or temporarily on Cyprus did it did it individually at their own uh, initiatives. 
Well, it's it's been said, and I wonder how how you take this. It's been said that Venetian rule then was principally exploitative. Were the Venetians the only one who who benefited in, during this era? Well, the uh, first the answer to the first part of your question is yes, and the second part is is also yes. <laughs> as a colonial as a colonial um, relationship, I mean, every colonial relationship is to to some extent exploitative, at least, and that is uh, also the case of Venice's uh, rule of Cyprus. They didn't, they did, but they did it in, in an I would, I would, I would even say intelligent way. They they understood that uh, a too harsh an exploitation would would not be remunerative, and it will then take too much effort to to keep the rule uh, of and face all kinds of difficulties. So. There were, I can give you an example. I mean, the most blatant example of exploitation is the uh, salt monopoly. Throughout the Venetian dominions, the state had a monopoly for on as far as the uh, salt production, trade, and uh, the sale of salt throughout the Venetian uh, empire, I would say. So, you know, Cyprus had... very, very big, uh, had very big salt pans in the area of nowadays Larnaca, which the Venetians called Les Saline, which means the salt pans. <laughs> this was the name of the place. And they, nature produced salt because the, you know, the, uh, the salted water from the sea when, uh, dried up in the lake during certain seasons. And, uh, all uh, the all that uh, Venice had to, to do was to pay very little sums to to peasants whose whose duty was to collect the salt and uh, transport it on the back of poor donkeys to the ships that moored uh, opposite the salt pans. You know the the legs of the donkeys uh, were ruined uh, doing yeah. so, and. Uh, then I mean it, it's qu- it's quite an, an ingenious uh, ingenious uh, system because Venice offered loans for shipbuilding in Venice, which could be paid back by transporting Cypriot salt to Venice again. So. Ship owners built ships with money received from the state as a loan, and then they transported the salt from Cyprus, and the salt even served them as ballast for the ships, because ships, you know, have to have a ballast, something heavy and stable at the lower part of the ship uh, uh, to to keep it stable uh, in in high sea. So the, (laughs) the salt was also... Uh, served served the the round ships uh, uh, for that purpose, and uh, Venice did not pay one ducat for this salt, nor for its transportation. And then uh, the, the state sold the salt uh, throughout the Venetian uh, territories, also in northern Italy. I mean, this, this is this is an exploitation of of a natural resource of the island. 
which does not even appear in the balance sheets of 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 Venetian Cyprus because no money was you know <laughs> was there there was no money that was invest directly invested in that operation now this time period one of the i suppose rebuttals about this being a, a period of decline and decay is that we have a population boom we know that uh, Cyprus's population increases. I don't know if we can say it doubles. I don't know the numbers myself. And this seems to indicate uh, a time of relative prosperity. Uh, but towards the end, there's a contraction in the population growth, if I'm not mistaken. I, I believe food needs to be imported at some point. And, and in 1566, there's even a food riot that leads to a rebellion and, and an execution of a priest. What happens in this period well i wouldn't i wouldn't use the term uh, contraction or how did you put, put it uh, i said contraction yeah yeah contraction uh, it's it's not it's not a contraction uh, probably even the opposite is true what went wrong you see as long as as on the island there were uncul- uncultivated lands fertile lands which were not uh, not used for agriculture, and Venice could support the expansion of cultivated lands, relatively fertile cultivated lands, uh, to support the the demographic rise of the population. So most of it concerned, of course, the rural population, but also, of course, the urban population uh, uh, that did not produce any any grains especially. So uh, this worked quite well until the, I would say, mid-50s. But, you know, there was a limit of fertile lands that could be, could be added to, those, uh, culti- to the cultivated areas. And what began to, to become a problem was specifically the relation between the population rise that continued also, I think, during the 1560s and the uh, available and the possibility to produce food for all these, for all these new Cypriots. Mm, okay. <laughs> if I can say so. Yeah. But but the 1560s was a, was also a, a period of other difficulties, not only concerning food 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 supply and no. Still, regarding food, the problem is that Venice too reached its maximum, its maximum expansion, the urban, the city of Venice, its max, maximum expansion in, in the, exactly in the 1560s. And there was huge pressure from Venice to send, Venice was used already to, to consume Cypriot grains, especially oats, uh, but also uh, all kinds of grains. Uh, and when uh, in the 1560s the governor said we, we cannot send you any 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 grains anymore because we need them for for our local consumption here in Cyprus, the the the, the central council of government in in Venice were furious. They were menacing the gun uh, the the governors to 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 punish them severely if they don't send uh, continue to send shiploads of 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 grains. But uh, very impressively, the the local the Venetian governors who were Venetian patricians refrained from sa- sending grain to Venice because they they, they were convinced that their their the responsibility is to to respond to local demand for food. 
this is this is really a dramatic situation that you that is reflected in the in the in the in the exchange of letters you know between between the governors and the central uh, it was not only a local problem it was at the, at the level of you know of the venetian empire in general and then of course the 1560s there are other problems. These were difficult years, also not only because of grain shortage, uh, grain shortage, food shortage, but also because we are at the height of the campaign, the the the, the papal campaign of the counter revolution, counter reformation. Catholic bishops that before preferred to live in Venice and uh, and receive the revenues of their Cypriot estates began to to live in Cyprus to stay and operate in, for instance, the Archbishop of Nicosia, Filippo Mocenigo, in the 1560s. He was a fanatic Catholic, and he wanted to impose the the, the decisions of the Council of Trent. You know the the Counter Reformation. Uh, reform, yes, of, of the church to impose the decision, uh, also doctrinal uh, points that, that, that the Greeks would not, would not uh, agree to, uh, to accept. So you see there, there was a combination of different um, developments that tra- transformed the 1560s into, into, into a rather difficult uh, situation uh, to which one has also uh, add the you know the Ottoman pressure because uh, it was at the one point quite clear that the Ottomans were going to attack. Uh, right, and this and this flies uh, in the face of Venice's pragmatic policy when it comes to religion, doesn't it? It's quite common for there to be intermarriages, intermingling of religious customs. So this is this is what he, um, the archbishop is trying to stamp out essentially. I mean, uh, there was a doctrinal there was a doctrinal uh, disagreement, of course, between the Catholics and the Orthodox Greeks uh, on on the point of of, of many points, but also about about uh, priest uh, marriage, of course. We're almost nearing um, the, the eve of the Ottoman conquest, but before we get to that, I do have one final question about the landscape, so to speak. We know that the villages at the time are generally homogenous. Uh, I believe most are Greek-speaking uh, Orthodox Christians, except you, except for the towns. The towns, you call them kaleidoscopic um, in nature. We have Syrians, we have Jews emigrating from Spain and Portugal. What do we know about the indigenous, or was there an indigenous Jewish community uh, at the time in Cyprus? Yeah, the, there was, uh, in, uh, speaking about the Venetian period, uh, a Jewish community, not very not very numerous, actually, uh, in Famagusta. There was a Jewish quarter around a sort of camp or piazza and uh, a synagogue, of course. And uh, we, we have even the, the list of names because at one point uh, they were suspected as collab- collaborators with the potential uh, Ottoman enemies, and uh, and the uh, decision was taken to to banish those Jews who were not born in Cyprus. Uh, and uh, so we have a list, a detailed list of all, all the heads of household, at least Jewish heads of household. Uh, uh, in Famagusta, 
but that, you know, that was not a novelty. I mean, they were there also before the Venetians, and uh, there were uh, there also, at least partly, very few of them also under the Ottomans. What would you say was the impact of the Italian and Venetian culture on Cyprus during those um, those hundred or so years? Uh, for example, uh, language, uh, art, I, I guess the linguistic, literary, and religious spheres. Was it a lasting impact? There was. Uh, I, I collaborated in a collective volume published a few years ago uh, uh, entitled Cyprus and the Renaissance, which tried to... <laughs> to respond to some of your the questions that you raise now, there was certainly some sort of uh, impact, I would say. Uh, I mean, uh, my my uh, my separate colleagues, historians of art, are always uh, uh, reiterate are are very impressed, and I also am also impressed. Uh, by the number of uh, small churches and uh, chapels uh, built in, especially in the mountainous areas of Cyprus uh, during the Venetian period. It was be- beautiful uh, uh, frescoes uh, on the walls, uh, which I would not describe. I'm not an art historian, but I would not describe them as, uh, you know, that remind me of Venetian, of a contemporary, contemporaneous uh, Venetian Venetian art or frescoes. I mean, this is a provincial art, but 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 very very fascin- fascinating to, as far as I'm concerned, and 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 beautiful also. These are painters. Uh, some some of them are known by their name, but others not. It is a it is a, a reflection of a certain. Uh, a certain uh, degree of well-being, I think, uh, building so many churches and decorating them uh, means that people had uh, some uh, means uh, to to invest uh, in them and uh, and uh, enjoy enjoy them later. As far as uh, literature and uh, and language are concerned, uh, well, language is for me easier to 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 refer to because. Uh, I, I've gone through, through many, many uh, written documents. Actually, this is interesting. Italian, some sort of Italian, I would say, is replacing French already before the Venetian takeover in Cyprus. Uh, it is a kind of lingua franca of the Mediterranean, you see. And uh, this is because Venetian and Genoese activity in, uh, in the Mediterranean. Yes, uh, yes. And, and, and Cyprus was not a closed island. I mean, people were coming and going. And, uh, and uh, they also, the, you know, the Franciscans and the Dominicans and so on, most of them were, were Italian, were settled in the island and uh, active there. And so this is, this is uh, even, even I have, I remember a small letter written by King Jacques de Lusignan himself, uh, in a sort of a bit funny Italian, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there was, there was a, certainly a linguistic uh, uh, impact and there are linguists, uh, linguists that are studied these processes. Uh, I'm not an expert in this field. Uh, as far as uh, I think music, there are some 
some scholars who study um, music, uh, yes, the development of separate music uh, and its its relation with its relation with the uh, with Venice. Uh, I think uh, yes, uh, Tassos Papacostas did, uh, did 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 some work on that. The the nineteen uh, sorry the fifteen seventies or rather fifteen seventy is the beginning of the Ottoman invasion, and there's there's a I, I forget who actually said this. I believe it was I believe it was said during the attack on Constantinople in fourteen fifty three, but the saying "better the turban than the Turkish turban than the <laughs> yes. than the mitre the Roman Catholic <laughs> mitre," and this is this is something that has been said quite often to describe the general dissatisfaction with Latins and Western rule. Now, was there generally a divide between serfs and Greek nobility when the Ottomans invaded? Because many studies have suggested the Ottoman conquest and the abolition of serfdom brought a huge relief. And it's been suggested that serfs welcomed this this, uh, change. They They saw the Ottomans as... Uh, in a sense, liberators, and we do know that that nobles, uh, Cypriot nobles, Greek nobles, did fight uh, uh, to to protect Nicosia and Famagusta. But uh, it's a little gray this this area for me. It's a little gray. Could you uh, bring any clarity to this? Well, this uh, contention is part of of the black legend, and it uh, it, uh, but it does not go back to Maslatri. Or, or probably it does. No, it does not, actually. It does not, but it, it's one of the additions, you know, by other authors who, 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 who thought that would suit, uh, that would suit uh, the general pejorative uh, uh, description of, of Venetian rule. Now, a, a Turkish scholar, very important, uh, the Turkish uh, scholar, Called Halil Inaljik, I don't know if you came across his name. He's well known. Uh, published an article that appeared already was republished three times already, <laughs> based on uh, on Ottoman documentation, and mainly the the documents. Now, when when the Ottomans uh, uh, conquered a new a new territory and uh, intended uh, preparing to introduce to, to 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 integrate it into their uh, empire, they uh, the way to do it was to uh, sending uh, sending uh, government officials, uh, Ottoman officials, to the new territory, investigating what was. The uh, f- especially the fiscal organization of the territory under the former regime, in this case the Venetian regime, and the, and then after after sending to the to the central organs of government of the Ottoman Empire their conclusions, and the central organs would then decide what will remain intact, what will be changed, what will be ad- added, what will be removed, etc. And this. Is appears in 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 a sort of founding documents that is called Kanun, where uh, where uh, the, the description of the former former fiscal 
regime is described, and the and the new and the new regime uh, is yes uh, detailed, uh, uh, and the details of the new regime is the details in of the new regime following. Now, this document appeared exists in the Ottoman Empire in the uh, in the Ottoman archives, and uh, was published by Khalil Naljik with his interpretation. Now, what? Uh, my my good colleague, uh, the late and dear friend, uh, the late Gilles uh, Weinstein, and myself collaborated in um, examining uh, this analysis published by Khalil Naljik and of and and uh, no less so the way in which the former fiscal regime is described by the Ottomans themselves in 1572, we came to the conclusion that the, that the Ottomans simply did not understand the terminology of the, of the Venetian, Cypriot Venetian fiscal system. They did not understand the distinction between serfs and francomati and, and free and free peasants. And the, the, uh, uh, Although they declare they wanted to alleviate the fiscal load upon the, uh, the different peasants, but what they did was often quite the opposite because of the limitations of well, the the situation was even it was very difficult to make such an investigation. In 1572, on the, on, on the ground, I mean, in, I mean, uh, the, the, the country was quite ruined. Uh, the island was quite ruined. There were not enough people who could, who could explain what the terminology means, etc. So, uh, so uh, the uh, according to to our uh, investigation, our research, uh, Gilles Weinstein and myself. Gilles, the great expert of the Ottoman Empire, and me, uh, you know, uh, specializing in, in Venetian Cyprus, we came to the conclusion that <laughs> uh, the serfs, if we speak only about serfs, did not have a good reason to 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 welcome the Ottomans uh, with open hands. Uh, they did not. They, they had no choice. They had no choice, of course. They had to do it because the Ottoman army was much stronger than they. They could not. They could not stand against against the Ottoman army, especially if they lived in their villages. But uh, the change was the change was very often for not for the better. I mean, the result of of, of the change of regime. And uh, in some cases, the Ottomans themselves realized at some point that they were wrong, that they, they did not read the situation uh, uh, properly, and, and they tried to, to, to correct. Uh, but that, that took them a few years to, to, to realize. What happened to these noble families in, uh, in Venice after the, um, the, the conquest in 1571? Uh, not in Venice, in Cyprus. Well, well, some of them were killed. Uh, for instance, uh, some of the Singlitico, some of the Singlitico uh, died uh, defending uh, Nicosia alongside the, the Venetian uh, officials and uh, soldiers. Uh, some of them uh, managed to escape, even 
before the invasion or during or after that, uh, none of them remain in Cyprus. So it's sort of um, a reset, if I could use that terminology, uh, with the arrival of the Ottomans. We have no more noble families. Uh, we have. Well, we uh, have, you have a sort of a sort of not. This is not a. A nobility on the Western model of nobility, but uh, you know the pashas, the pashas, the Turkish pashas, were sort a sort of nobility. I mean, yes, it, it was um, not a hereditary nobility like like the Western one, but yes. Uh, Benjamin, it has been truly a pleasure and an honor to have you uh, with with us today to share your wealth of knowledge in this really important period in, in Cypriot history. So again, I want to thank you so much. It was really, really enlightening having this conversation. Thank you, Andreas. I, I enjoyed it very much too, too and I, I am glad uh, we did it. Uh, it, it. It was a pleasure collaborating with your initiative. Uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, and thank you for inviting me to, to take part in it.